episode said, and you're here on Winner Take All, where we talk about the constant battle between large tech monopolies and traditional incumbents. So you may have been hearing a lot about um, PayPal, bought uh, essentially a um, payment tech startup called Honey. Um, well, it's kind of like a coupon tech startup called Honey. Uh, PayPal bought them for $4 billion last week. And there's been a lot of commotion about um, that it was a very high valuation and, you know, was it worth it and all these kinds of things. So uh, I'm going to pull together a few different opinions, a few different analyses from people, uh, a few different stats, and then you're going to be able to make up your own mind. So um, what does Honey do, first of all? So Honey gives you a, an extension um, that goes on your browser. So if you use Google Chrome or whatever, you know, you can get those like plugins. So if you're, view, if you're browsing or shopping for stuff online and you're on one e-commerce site, and let's say you're on uh, Home Depot and you're looking at buying this thing on Home Depot, then you click on the Honey extension and it'll help you find any coupons or it'll help you find the product at a cheaper price elsewhere. Basically, it's helping you to comparison shop, to find coupons, uh, and to save you money. So that's why you see this first bullet here, uh, which is, see, uh, saved $1 billion for users this year, that first line. Uh, currently at $100 million in revenue growing at 100% year over year. So they're basically doubling every year in revenue. Uh, they're profitable. They've only raised $40 million before this acquisition. So they didn't need to raise more money in order to continue basically doubling every year. It's pretty great growth, pretty great model. Um, and it's a platform model, which is now on the other side of it, connecting you to merchants. So they have 30,000 merchants. And so, right, they're saying, hey, you're looking at buying this product on Home Depot. Well, you could get it over here, um, or this would be another complimentary product that you have a good deal for, right? So they're helping on it from a, from a, um, a kind of less controlled product marketplace standpoint to connect that consumer with other alternatives, whether it's coupons or other merchants or other products, right? Um, why is PayPal doing this? Because PayPal says we have... Uh, like 200 million to no PayPal has 24 million merchants. And um, that is basically, uh, let me pull this up from our uh, buddy Ben Thompson at Stratechery. This was his article uh, today about PayPal acquires honey. Um, why would PayPal go and do this? And his theory at the end of this is that um, it's really about the merchants. PayPal's management said that the Honey acquisition was more about the consumer offerings than it was about their merchant offerings. To be blunt, I don't believe them. I think that they don't want to say this acquisition is about merchants because that leads to very uncomfortable questions about data and so on and so forth. So what the PayPal executives have been saying is that this helps them move upstream in the cycle, right? Where PayPal today is at the bottom of the stream. It's, hey, I bought this. Now I need to pay for this. And that's why when you'll be at different e-commerce sites, you can have the, you know, pay with PayPal button, all that kind of stuff. Um, and so PayPal is saying, hey, how can I move farther upstream in the consumer's purchasing decision process, uh, which is where Honey plays, right? In terms of getting coupons, getting alternative offers, and linking that with merchants. And, and PayPal has a lot of merchants. Um, 
that's the broad level kind of uh, thought on this. So a couple uh, dynamics to this, which, you know, I kind of, I, here's where I struggle with on, on the honey acquisition. So they say they have uh, 17 million users. So consumers today, they had 10 million last year. So they grew about 70% from a user growth standpoint, 100% from a revenue standpoint. So you had 70% year over year growth uh, for your users. That's a lot of growth. PayPal has a lot of cons- consumers, obviously. I think the, the one thing that I guess most troubling for me with this is the, the mobile versus desktop experience. So what I've described to you is when you have a desktop browser or a laptop and and you have the browser and you have the extensions on that um it kind of reminds me of when facebook was launching their kind of app store for games you remember that you could you could make like farmville and all these games remember farmville you could make all these games and farmville and these companies had amazing businesses they were growing like mad but then that all fell apart the whole kind of gaming platform thing fell apart when this thing called mobile came into the game and then you had this thing called the app store which meant that your facebook game called farmville now couldn't be built in the same environment that web environment it couldn't be built within the facebook ecosystem and so it it didn't work anymore literally like the farmville all those businesses zynga kind of went like that um and facebook itself had a trying number of years Remember when they were trying to do like the the weird version? Like they didn't want to use iOS native apps. They wanted to do like a web browser experience on uh, like HTML5 on iOS because they didn't want to hand over the keys to the kingdom and and solely operate in in Apple's iOS environment. They wanted to have HTML5 and they didn't want to agree with it. And basically, the experience and the the user experience on the app was not good as apps that went native and used iOS versus ones that were these hybrid kind of HTML things. Okay, enough with that. Point is, they tried to go around the dominant platform in mobile called either iOS or Android, and it didn't work out. And the ecosystems that they built, which were um, kind of domain specific for the desktop web environment, didn't translate to the mobile app environment. And this is the thing that I... I don't know, maybe I'm missing it, but it doesn't commute, com- compute to me. So Honey also has a mobile app that you can go on to and they will show you coupons and they will show you other offers and products and things from their merchants. The difference is, I don't think people are really going... Honey's main transaction model is I'm online, I've got an extension, I'm view- viewing an e-commerce store and you're now showing me alternatives. Right. The the honey value prop business model is not I go to honey.com and I go to honey.com to buy products because they're presenting me with the, the best product um, optionality or whatever it is. Right. That's not the value prop online uh, in a desktop environment, which is, I think, the majority of their usage. Mobile experience has a different value prop, which is you got to go to the honey app and the honey app is then going to show you these coupon things. Right. It's it might be a subtle difference, but it's a very big difference in my mind, right? If you just plot that user journey. And I don't see how the business model 
translates. I'm not saying it's not viable on mobile. I'm just saying for $4 billion and a you know 40x revenue multiple, we don't know what their profits are, but they're profitable. Whatever the EBITDA multiple is going to be even crazier. This company has crazy growth. They built a great business. Um, I just, I, my curiosity, and I'm sure the Dan Shulman at, at PayPal and these guys probably have a plan for mobile. I just don't really see it working the same way. Um, and I don't see it being as sticky. And so I don't know if that means that honey is a farm bill and this thing's going to crash and burn come mobile because they're obviously operating in the mobile environment and you can see what the data is like, but let me show you some of these stats. Okay. So it's a few interesting charts here. I was pulling up. Um, this is mobile e-commerce um, as you know, as just a share of e-commerce. So 20, 2018 is 1.8 trillion US dollars. Um, this is uh, 2019, now 67%. So you basically just see from 50% to 72, 73% over the period of you know five years or so. Um, now, this is another interesting one that's looking at um, mobile app versus web. So you can see that's the other point, right? Like people use apps for e-commerce. So that's on this right side, this kind of like pinkish orange thing. Um, that's mobile apps. Mobile web is the gray. Mobile web is the gray. And you can see on the left side, mobile apps, e-commerce sales uh, in, in versus mobile apps or desktop web or mobile web. You can see that breakdown. Mobile now accounts for 50% of all e-commerce traffic. Um, this is on Shopify, but this is just traffic. And now here's another one that, that, that I was looking at, cause we're going to get to it, um, later about Alibaba, but this was really interesting. Okay. So Alibaba doing about, this is like 3 trillion. I don't know. It's it, this is they're doing about 400 450 billion dollars in GMV US dollars. Um this is in 2016, so they're not fully releasing uh, all this information as accurately as you would like, but look at the mobile. 73%. This is in 2016. Uh is that mobile penetration. And so that to me, like that to me, like you can't, you just can't get the same experience of I'm on my mobile browser. Let's just say I'm looking at Alibaba's, you know, one of Alibaba's e-commerce sites, show me the coupons to buy this thing somewhere else. It, it just, that user experience doesn't exist, right? Or worse, I'm now in the Alibaba app, which is clearly what those other charts were showing is that people are buying uh, stuff on mobile in apps much more so than they are on the web. So um, I don't have the answer there, but that to me is the thing that I would would certainly cause me a lot of concern for why you're you're spending so much money on this business and can it actually move into the mobile arena uh, or not? I don't know. I'm I'm I'd say I'm a little skeptical on that front. So now this has been an interesting one. A lot of people. A lot of people who are a skeptic of Amazon or negative on Amazon's model will say, well, Amazon doesn't make any money. It's a little bit harder to make that claim now, um, but certainly you would hear that claim about historically, well, I can't compare my business to Amazon because my investors won't let me not make money for 20 years. Now they're starting to make money, um, 
But for 20 years or so, Amazon was started in 1994. For a little over 20 years, Amazon basically had wasn't making any money, any money, wasn't really losing money. It was pretty much just breaking even, wasn't making any money, uh, but it had huge growth. And so a lot of people will then say, oh, well, I'm, you know, of course, if I could just make no money in my business for 20 years, then I could deliver to you an Amazon. Yeah, I'm definitely going to, I'm definitely going to have a challenge agreeing with anyone that says that to me on, on that point, but let's, let's back it up a notch and actually debunk the fact that Amazon had no profits. And what FCF is, is free cash flow. You know that saying, cash is king? Amazon understands the power of the dollar bill more than just about any other company out there. You can see here, revenue versus profit slide. <laughs> Basically until 2018, Profit was not there, it was non-existent. It oscillates basically slightly above break-even or slightly below break-even, but basically it's a flat line for 23, 24 years of, of their history, while sales are skyrocketing, right? The seasonality here that, you know, where it goes up and then down, that's because of the, the holiday season, right? So now here is the key, free cash flow. See this yellow line? See in, say, 2006, you really kind of see it start to take off. Now, that might be a billion dollars or so of free cash flow, but compared to the fact that they were only doing maybe five or six billion dollars uh, in top line, the relative amount of free cash flow is actually very strong, right? It's above 10%. Look in 2010, look at that spike. 2010, by the way, this is, this is the Great Recession here, right? This is 2008. Their revenue kind of tapers off. You know, it's kind of like flat lines, 2008 to 2009, and then it goes back to 2010. Look at the spike in 2010 on the free cash flow. Um, and then 20, 2011, 2012, and then you really see that, that hockey stick growth um, and the free cash flow kind of oscillates. Bam, look at 2015. It's really back and strong. $10 billion in free cash flow, 2017. Um, now look at it, man, over 20, $25 billion. These are crazy numbers. Okay. And then their profit, finally, they had to post a profit when they've got $25 billion in free cash flow. What is free cash flow? Okay. Free cash flow. I'll read it to you. Basically, I'll give my definition, then I'll read you this thing. Free cash flow is saying my business is cash flow positive in a sense that um, I, I took in $1 and then I had to sell this product for $1 minus X. But then one, you know, one minus X equals Y, let's say. Whatever Y is, is your difference in um, the cash that you have of if, 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 if X is comprised of, here's my cost of goods sold. Let's say I sold you a book and then you have some operating expenses, which could be for your personnel, developing technology, your fulfillment, your sales commissions, your bonuses, right? Health insurance, all of your expenses. Um, and then you're saying, okay, well, what's left over now? Here's the thing about free cash flow. Free cash flow is saying, 
if I was to generate 20 cents in free cash flow for every dollar that I take in, what Jeff and the Amazon team decided to do was to say, we're going to reinvest. Instead of having that 20% in free cash flow, most of it flow through to our bottom line. There's a little nuance here about the timing of cash, which I'll get into. But instead of having the 20 cents flow through to the bottom line and be profit, um, what we're going to do is actually reinvest, take that 20 cents, and now actually just have much larger operating expenses, right? I'm going to hire a lot more engineers. I'm going to invest a lot more in my infrastructure and in my warehouses and my fulfillment capabilities and all of those kinds of things, right? And so while I was generating 20 cents in free cash flow, I then decided to invest that 20 cents into other things, which meant that my net profit was basically zilch, nothing. But that's because I decided to reinvest that cash into the business, right? Now, here's, the, here's the, the Vox's definition. It's a bit like profit, except it doesn't assume that Amazon has to pay for everything in the same time frame. It sells it. Um, basically, how Amazon's payment cycle usually gets money for selling an item long before it has to pay for that item. And it takes Walmart uh, an average of three days to receive payment. And while Amazon on average, so basically saying is Amazon receives the money for the product that you bought before uh, they have to pay the supplier for it. It's out of that free cash flow that uh, Amazon's able to deliver, you know, to, to reinvest this money. Now, I think that's part of it. But, um, you know, that's kind of a, a balancing act between those pay cycles 18 days, just because you generate some free cash flow for 18 days, that's a good sign that you have a healthy business. That isn't going to give you billions of dollars of, of profit to be able to reinvest or, or what would be profit to be able to reinvest uh, into the other parts of the business. Now, this is the other part. So thanks to margins that have risen faster than capital expenditures, it has even more money coming in before the last quarter's bill is due. Therefore, it's money on hand. Free cash flow is always higher uh, than its profits. So that to me is the bigger crux here. So what Amazon is doing is they're able to basically just reinvest their profits that you can see what that profit would have looked like more closely if you were to evaluate their free cash flow metric, right? Um, but because they have invested that free cash flow into the business in the form of an expense, now you're not going to see that trickle down to the bottom line in the form of profit. So it's hard to equate and say, oh, well, if Amazon hadn't made all these investments in infrastructure and technology, et cetera, what would its profit have been? Amazon's not going to tell you that number. They're not going to tell you, well, here's the money that we needed to just kind of like continue and operate the business. And then here's the additional money that we invested um, and basically didn't deliver a return. Jeff was not disclosing that. What he was saying is, I have free cash flow. If I decide to tailor back, say I have a billion dollars in free cash flow, let's say I decide to not invest $900 million in, um, you know, in uh, new investments for the business. Now, a good chunk of that will be able to flow to the bottom line. He didn't want to do that. And I think rightly so. You can see that that's paying off many, many dividends now. And, and the company just, despite having, what was it? 
over $20 billion in free cash flow. They're doing their best to not generate much of a profit, but even at those levels of free cash flow, there's not much that they can do to, to avoid posting some bottom line profit. Uh, but that really is the, the crux of this. If Amazon had wanted to be profitable, they could have been profitable 10 years ago. Right? But they didn't want to. And they saw the opportunity. Uh, they saw the ability to invest in key areas and just now be so far ahead of the competition that literally the only company that is able to truly compete with Amazon is Walmart. Well, basically the largest company in the world doing over $500 billion in revenue and they're struggling to, to compete, right? That's the kind of head start that Jeff was able, able to accumulate if, where if, if they'd gone, if they'd been profitable 10 years ago, yeah, that would have been nice, but he clearly didn't think that was the best decision for the long-term success of the business. And I got to give him a lot of credit for that. <clears throat> so um, net net, don't believe people that tell you that Amazon wasn't profitable for 20 years because they could have if they'd wanted to, but they actually made a smart decision to, to invest that money elsewhere. So uh, let's look at, let's look at Asia. Um, so this was last week, Yahoo Japan and Line confirmed to merge. So if you don't know what Line is, Line is in Plat, the ETF. Uh, they are the dominant messaging platform in Korea and, um, and, and other parts of Southeast Asia and Japan. They've expanded into doing, you know, food delivery and, and logistics and ride hailing and, um, and a few other complementary kind of platform conglomerate type businesses. And in the past, um, let's see, you can kind of see the stock jump here from about $40 to a little over $50. And what they're going to do is they're going to take line private. Uh, and merge these two entities together and try and roll them up, consolidate this thing in Japan and other parts of Asia where there's now increased competition from other large tech, either companies or tech monopolies um, like the Alibabas of the world that are moving very aggressively into Southeast Asia and these related spaces. Now, another reason why I think you see this happening is because we have um, Alibaba, which just did a capital raise, secondary listing. So Alibaba is listed with the New York Stock Exchange, primary listing. Secondary listing is in now Hong Kong. Um, and you can see here, you know, they, um, they raised about $11 billion in this listing. They said that it was oversubscribed. I have another article here that talks about the thing being oversubscribed and <clears throat> why they're raising this money. And they're saying that they're using this money to um, expand more broadly. It says the proceeds to drive user engagement, improve operational efficiency, pay for continued innovation. Um, I, think, I think part of this is that they need to invest uh, both at home and abroad in like Southeast Asia that we're talking about with the, with the line merger um, in order to stay competitive. They have Pinduoduo the group purchasing e-commerce site that has taken off like wildfire in, in wildfire in rural China um, that's trying to, uh, to give Alibaba a run for their money. So they have competitors at home, they have competitors abroad, you have line merging, you have 
you know, the, their competition just getting stronger. And so they wanted this capital to help shore up their balance sheet so that they can continue to reinvest and expand um, and all these kinds of things. Now, the interesting thing with this is that if you read through these articles, you may see, oh, well, wow, you know, Alibaba's killing it. They've really done, you know, this, this, this raise was a huge success for them. Another perspective on this. So Alibaba cuts fundraising target for delayed Hong Kong listing. Basically, what this, is, what this article says from the Financial Times is that originally Alibaba was looking to raise up to $20 billion. They ended up just raising a hair over $11 billion. There's a, you know, a TechCrunch article. And basically, what it says is Alibaba decided, you know, basically um, was oversubscribed was the language that was used. And um, that, that, you know, the, the public offering was a huge success. The thing is that they were actually trying to raise more money up to $20 billion. They really wanted to get this deal done by the end of the year. They didn't want this to carry on into next year. So you kind of need to ask yourself, why is there so much urgency here? Um, is it that they see this purely as opportunistic? Uh, or is there some other kind of, uh, say, pressure that is really forcing their hand that they need this capital either to continue to invest in foreign or, or, or domestic operations that are burning through cash or go do some acquisitions that they think are prudent because the competition is fast on their um, heels. But it'll, I, I think it's got to be a mixture of a couple of those things. It just The timing seems a little bit rushed. The other thing to note about Alibaba is that you, you know, when we look at these numbers on their site, these numbers stop in 2016. So they stop to disclose um, exactly what their GMV is and all these kinds of things. You get to see in their standard reporting disclosure what their revenue is and, and what a, a traditional P&L looks like, but they don't give you GMV anymore. You need to try to infer uh, what, their, what their GMV is. As we've spoken about on the show, Uber shows GMV, Lyft doesn't show GMV. And that, to me, as an investor, raises some red flags. This also seems a little bit very general. Oh, we just want to invest in more growth. Well, why do you need $11 billion to invest in more growth? Meanwhile, it's very obvious that the competitive landscape is only becoming more aggressive. Um, and Hong Kong, there's a lot of turmoil in Hong Kong right now. Is that that make a lot of sense to, to do the listing in Hong Kong right now. Um, and you have to get it done by the end of the year. I don't know. It just seemed like a lot of things there that don't seem to make the most business sense unless there's some kind of other competitive threat or opportunity that they need to make an acquisition. Um, that's really the thing driving this and, and putting more urgency uh, on a deal like this. So maybe we'll see them make some kind of an acquisition and uh, get some news about that in the, in the near future. We shall see. So last topic is <clears throat> Tokopedia. And this actually dovetails perfectly with that point about there just being more competition in Southeast Asia. For example, Tokopedia raises $1.5 billion and they are a, a, a marketplace backed by SoftBank 
and Alibaba. <laughs> so um, they have raised this $1.5 billion and they're operating uh, in Indonesia. And it's uh, not too dissimilar from the other marketplace models that we've spoken about on the show. But um, they're looking at maybe going public and that kind of stuff. But point is, more and more of these, I would say, country-specific marketplaces in Southeast Asia are getting more and more dominance. You're seeing some of the, the existing kind of small to mid-tier platforms like Align do these mergers to consolidate their network effects. You're seeing up-and-coming ones trying to do one big private fundraise before potentially doing an IPO like Tokopedia. And what that's saying is that I don't know, maybe Alibaba wants some capital to um, either compete with Tokopedia or buy them or something. But this is definitely a sign that these kinds of companies um, and a Pinduoduo in China are absolutely on Alibaba's radar. And we don't really know what kind of growth Alibaba is seeing from, from their GMV, from the total throughput onto Alibaba. We can see what they're doing on revenue, but we don't. We're not able to fully understand um, the the true top line growth, the GMV, as opposed to the revenue growth, which is not really indicative of total throughput. So, I think things are just getting more. Uh, the competition is getting more fierce in Asia, and what once used to be a massive pie where you could have multiple players, and you're you're not really kind of on each other's turf. That's definitely not the case anymore. And the, 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 the platforms in either China, Asia, Southeast Asia are now starting to overlap much more with one another. And I think you're starting to see more aggressive platform wars in those regions, uh, both in China and outside of China. And what that means is you need more capital. The problem is the equity markets don't really like the idea of giving these platform companies a bunch of capital so they can burn through it and then have a bunch of losses. And so um, I think that's probably part of the urgency that's driving, say, Tokopedia to do a raise um, and Alibaba to do a raise. They're trying to kind of stash up their war chests now uh, because there's more uncertainty about what kind of capital they could raise later on. Maybe if, maybe if the, the climate is a little bit better even. Um, or a little less rush to get that money. But it seems like people are trying to get that money, get the war chest so that they can endure a, a, a say, a longer haul or longer period of, of competition in Asia. So it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. That's it for us today on Winner Take All. I'm out of here, so I'm going uh, with the in-laws on Thanksgiving break. Everyone, I hope you have a great Thanksgiving holiday. Spend some good time with friends and family. Uh, overindulge, and we will talk to you next week. Thanks for joining us.